So Psalm 18 is, in fact, one of the longer psalms in the Psalter. Now, if you're not familiar with the Psalter, when you get to Psalm 119, Psalm 18, Psalm 18 is nothing. I mean, Psalm 119 is so long. But nevertheless, Psalm 18 is one of the longest ones. It's certainly the longest psalm we've come to up to this point in the Psalter. But I have worked really, really hard this week to not make this one of the longest sermons up to this point in the Psalter. And I think we're going to do okay as far as time is concerned. Now, although Psalm 18 is very long, it is certainly not dry. The language in this psalm is colorful, it's vivid, and it evokes a sense of awe and wonder in the hearts of the readers. The superscription to begin this psalm says, To the choir master, a psalm of David, the servant of the Lord, who addressed the words of this song to the Lord on the day when the Lord delivered him from the hand of all of his enemies, And from the hand of Saul, he said. So from the superscription, we're going to learn a few things. We learn that this is another psalm of David, the great king of Israel. So David's the author here. We also learn there that this was a song to the Lord. Now, as we've pointed out, many of the psalms that we've studied together actually were prayers. Some of those prayers were converted to music and became a part of the worship catalog in Israel, but this psalm was composed as a song. It was not a prayer. It was a song of David. And the the day that David wrote, this is a little bit hard for us to pinpoint. He says that it was written in response to God's deliverance from Saul's hands and also the hands of all of his enemies. So it could mean that it was written uh, when God delivered him from Saul and all of Saul's men which would have placed this early in the life of David. But it could also mean and more likely means that it was composed as God delivered David from Saul, but also all of David's other enemies. And the reason why that's more likely is because Psalm 18 is actually found also in 2 Samuel chapter 22. 2 Samuel is a historical book. 2 Samuel, along with 1 Samuel, tells about David's reign in Israel In 2 Samuel 22, uh, again, is a repeat of this psalm with minor variations, but it places this song and its composition at the end of David's life. After David had been delivered certainly from from Saul, but also from many other enemies. That suggests that this is not a psalm that was written in response to a single moment of deliverance. Like, for example, when David fought Goliath and he slew that mighty giant, David didn't run off right then and write this song. Rather, this is a song that David composed after a long life where he had seen that the arc of his life was an arc that demonstrated that God was a God who delivered, that God was a God who preserved, that God was a God who had protected this man through all of the ups and all of the downs of his life. And David now is singing in his old age about the goodness of God. The title of today's sermon is A Song of Deliverance. A Song of Deliverance. And I'm dividing this psalm into five sections. So there's going to be five divisions here that are going to help us try to get our heads around this very lengthy uh, song here. But there's five divisions. The first one is verses 1 through 3. And it's a passionate introduction. A passionate introduction. David begins here by saying this. He says, I love you, O Lord. I love you, O Lord. 
Now, this is a unique beginning to this psalm. No other psalm up to this point has began like that. Um, A lot of the psalms have begun with a cry to the Lord or a plea for help. But remember, most of the psalms up to this point have been prayers. This is a song. And it's a song of deliverance. And David begins his song by saying, I love you, O Lord. This is a song of thanksgiving. And the reason for it is because God had delivered David. Again, as David was sitting back now and surveying his life, and he's looking at every season, every chapter, and as we've talked about in our studies through Psalms, David had some difficult chapters. He had what we could describe as massive mountaintops, but he also had some deep valleys. And through all of it, David is able to look back at his life and the first thing out of his mouth, the first lyric in the song of his heart is, I love you, O Lord. Why is that the case? Well, because at the end of the day, David's story was a story of deliverance. David could look back and he could see that God had delivered him. And it's the deliverance of God that stirs up David's affection and David's love for the Lord. And family, the most surefire way to increase our love for the Lord is to look back at God's deliverance of each of us in our lives. Notice in the superscription, again, it says that, This was a song to the Lord on the day when the Lord delivered him. So first came the deliverance and then comes the love. David sees God has delivered me and it stirs up this affection. It stirs up this response of love in David's life. And that's the way that it works for all of us. Right? First John chapter four, verse 19. We love because he first loved us. If not for the love of God on display at Calvary's cross through the death of Jesus for our sins and the resurrection of Christ from the grave, we would not love God. It's the cross, it's the death of Jesus and the resurrection of Christ that stirs up our love. Also in 1 John 4, think of verse 10. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins sins. And so no matter what else is going on in our lives, no matter what season we're in, whether it's a high, whether it's a low, we know that God loves us because Christ died for us and Christ rose again to give us eternal life. And so for every believer, every person who's put their faith in Christ, when we come to the end of our journey and we look back at the chapters of our lives and we witness God's deliverance, our hearts are going to say, I love you, Lord. I love you, Lord. You've been so good to me. Now, to make the point that God is a deliverer, David unloads a bunch of names for God through verse 2. Lots of commentators point out that the names can be placed into two groups. James Montgomery Boyce, one of the many incredible preachers from 10th Presbyterian in Philadelphia, said this. He said, there's two kinds of metaphors that are used to portray God in these verses. One kind relates to David's military victories, picturing God as his strength, his shield, and horn of salvation. 
The other type relates to the times that David was forced to flee from his enemies. These images picture God as David's rock, his fortress, his deliverer, and his stronghold. All of these names reflect the same idea. The Lord is David's deliverer. God has delivered him from all of his trouble. And the very next verse, verse 3, as well as the rest of the psalm makes that point loud and clear. Moving to the second division or section of this psalm, in verses 4 through 19, we see the distress and the deliverer. So beginning with the distress, look at verse 4 again. David writes, The cords of death encompassed me. The torrents of destruction assailed me. The cords of Sheol entangled me. The snares of death confronted me. David lived a life that was constantly in mortal danger. David lived a life where death was constantly a threat for him. Now, many of us probably experience at most a couple of moments in our life that was kind of like near death or um, a mortal threat was against us. But again, this was the, the regular experience of David's life. Remember, King Saul tried to kill him for many years, was hunting him through the caves of the wilderness. And then remember that David was a king, and so he had foreign armies that were threatening him and trying to kill him and take him out as the leader of Israel throughout his reign. Remember as well that toward the end of David's life, his own son Absalom rose up against him to usurp the throne and tried to kill his own father. It's as if death was constantly knocking at the door of this man's life. And so, death and the grave are pictured here as having snares to trap David. Or having cords and ropes to kind of like pull him into the pit. To pull him into the grave. Now we need to pause here this morning. Because a lot of us would sit and think. Well my life's not in danger. I'm not near death. At least that I can tell. But family this is every person's reality on this side of Eden. Ever since the fall. Death is knocking at the door for all of us. Whether you're young or old. None of us escape death. One out of one persons will die. Okay, it might be five years from now. It might be 55 years from now. We just don't know. And so in a sense, death is knocking at the door for all of us. Physical death and spiritual death. Temporal death and eternal death. Romans 6.23 tells us the wages of sin is... We can do better than that. The wages of sin is death. What kind of death? Well, physical death, but also spiritual because Paul goes on to say, but the free gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus, our Lord. And so we, if we're wise, need to respond to this threat of death the same way that David responded to it. When David was in that distressing place, when death felt certain, he called upon the Lord. He cried for help from his God. And now verses 7 through 19 depict God, the deliverer, springing into action. Let's read it together. Verse 7, then the earth reeled and rocked. Actually, let's back up to verse 6. He says, in my distress, I called upon the Lord. To my God, I cried for help. From his temple, he heard my voice and my cry to him reached his ears. And then he says, then the earth reeled and rocked the foundations 
also of the mountains trembled and quaked because he was angry. Smoke went up from his nostrils and devouring fire from his mouth. Glowing coals flamed forth from him. He bowed the heavens and came down. Thick darkness was under his feet. He rode on a cherub and flew. He came swiftly on the wings of the wind. He made darkness his covering, his canopy around him, thick clouds, dark with water. Out of the brightness before him, hailstones and coals of fire broke through his clouds. The Lord also thundered in the heavens and the Most High uttered his voice, hailstones and coals of fire. And he sent out his arrows and scattered them. He flashed forth lightnings and routed them. Then the channels of the sea were seen and the foundations of the world were laid bare at your rebuke, O Lord, at the blast of the breath of your nostrils. We'll stop there. So David cries out and the Lord responds. Pastor Justin used that great quote last week from Spurgeon, where he says this, Spurgeon says, who can resist a cry? A real hearty, bitter, piteous cry, or piteous cry might almost melt a rock. There can be no fear of its prevalence with our heavenly father. A cry is our earliest utterance and in many ways, the most natural of human sounds. If our prayer should like the infant's cry be more natural than intelligent and more earnest than elegant, it will be nonetheless eloquent with God. There is a mighty power in a child's cry to prevail with a parent's heart. We have a trampoline in our backyard and my kids play on it constantly. And it's funny because when they're back there, and especially when the little one, Silas, who's only two, is playing with his bigger brothers, me and Erica will be in the kitchen and maybe we're making dinner or cleaning dishes and we'll hear a lot of sounds coming from the trampoline. And it's laughing and then it sounds like crying and we pause and we go, is Silas crying? Okay, he's okay. And we're just sitting there. But then there comes that sound, that sound of distress. Parents, you know the sound where you know there's trouble. You know there might be a broken bone out there. And we drop everything, no matter what we're doing, and we run out, kick open the gate and see what happens. And usually it's a false alarm. But that's the response, right? As a parent, when you hear that cry, that distressing cry, nothing else matters. You respond, you rise up in response. That's the way that David pictures the Lord here. David cries out in distress and all of a sudden it's as if the Lord moves heaven and earth to come and to rescue his child. God leaps into action and cosmic language colors this whole section. And the language is highlighting two things. It's highlighting God's holiness and it's highlighting God's power. Again, literally there's hailstones, there's lightning, there's clouds coming down, there's earth, the earth trembling and quaking. And all of this language is meant to strike awe and a sense of wonder in the hearts of us as readers. If you've ever been in an earthquake or you've ever been in a severe lightning and thunderstorm or you've ever seen a raging flood, then you, you can understand a bit of the fear that an experience like that invokes in you. When I was younger, I was in um, the Caribbean with my family. I was in Riviera Maya uh, with my parents and my siblings. And if you've ever been to the Caribbean or you've ever been somewhere tropic, you know that storms can roll in in a second. It can be sunny and clear like this. And within five minutes, it's a crazy storm. And everybody was out and it was sunny and it was beautiful. And we were all out in the ocean. People are playing and paddle boarding and just doing all kinds of stuff. And the beach was full of people. 
And I'm telling you, in 60 seconds, it felt like, maybe 90 seconds, this storm rolls in and the thunder and the lightning begin to strike. And the thunder was so loud, it literally sounded like the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. I mean, it sounded like the heavens were tearing apart and grown adults were shrieking and screaming and everybody gets out of the water and everybody clears the beach. And within five minutes, we were actually in our hotel room on the second story and I'm looking out, there is nobody outside. It was terrifying. It was, it, it just struck awe in you to be in the middle of a storm with that much power. That's the picture here that David gives. As the Lord rises up in response to take care of his beloved, his King David. Again, it's as if heaven and earth are being moved as God comes to rebuke, we see in verse 15. I love how in verses 9 and 10, God comes down from where he is in heaven to where David is on earth. He comes to save him. We see omnipotent power dispatched to save a tiny little speck named David. Old Testament commentator Derek Kidner writes, The titanic scale of this scene is in strange contrast to the small human figure of the singer. Such is the worth the psalm implies of an individual. And such is the worth of every single child of God. Just as God came down to rescue David from certain death, 2,000 years ago, Christ came down from heaven to rescue you and me from a certain eternal death where Jesus died for our sins and rose for our justification. Now, there's lots of symbolic language here. We see David's youth, use of anthropomorphism. That was like a total pastor flex right there, huh? What a great word. Anthropomorphism. How lame, huh? For me just to throw a big word around like that. Well, what does that mean? It means... The, the author is using human attributes to describe God. So he talks about God's nostrils and talks about um, uh, God speaking here and, and using his mouth. It talks about God having feet. Well, listen, God's a spirit. So none of those things are literally true. But the reason why an author would use this technique is because it helps us to grasp God's character and it helps us to understand God's actions. So God is being sort of personified here in this language. Now, what's fascinating is the language of this section takes us back to the Exodus out of Egypt and the book of Exodus. Notice that there's fire in verses 8, 12, and 13. Notice that there's a cloud in verse 11. So remember, as God's leading his people behind Moses out uh, toward the promised land, remember the Lord would be a cloud during the day and he'd be a pillar of fire at night. Notice also in verses 15 and 16, there's the parting of the waters, just like the parting of the Red Sea. And then notice in verse 19, David says that the Lord led him to the broad place, a picture of the promised land. Other language in this section takes us back to Mount Sinai, where God met Moses. Remember when God gives Moses the Ten Commandments and the Lord meets him on that mountain. Notice what we read in that experience in Exodus 19:18. It says, now Mount Sinai was wrapped in, check it out, smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire 
And the smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln, and the whole mountain trembled greatly. Now notice in our text here, in verse 8, there's smoke. We already talked about there being fire. And look at verse 7, there's quaking or the earth trembling. What I'm trying to point out is that David here, as he's recounting his own deliverance, he's able to look back at God's deliverance of his people in the past and see it as a picture of his own deliverance. He's able to look back and say, yes, just as God took his people out of Egypt and delivered them in the Exodus, God is doing the same thing and has done the same thing for me. And this is so cool because you and I can do the exact same thing. And we should do the exact same thing. As we read of God delivering David in Psalm 18, it's a picture of God's deliverance of you and me. And this is the same thing with every other passage in the scriptures. As we read the Old Testament and we see God standing up and delivering his people, listen, their deliverances are our deliverance. Their victory is our victory. As we see this deliverance of God in the scriptures, and as we see God's dealings with his people over the centuries, it's supposed to fill us with hope. It's supposed to fill us with an encouragement that God is going to be faithful to us as well, and God will deliver us as well. Romans 15, 4 puts it this way, for whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. Well, this brings us to the third section, verses 20 through 30, the dealings of the Lord, the dealings of the Lord. We're going to begin with the first few verses, verses 20 through 24, where we see the dealings of the Lord with David personally. Now, David says, starting in verse 20, he says, the, the Lord dealt with me according to my righteousness, according to the cleanness of my hands, he rewarded me. In verse 23, he says, I was blameless before him and I kept myself from my guilt. Now, we've talked about this before. But when David uses language like this in the Old Testament, David is not claiming that he is perfectly righteous, that he has never sinned, that he is perfectly blameless. That's not what David is saying at all. And he's not saying that because I am perfect, that's why I've earned God's favor. No, we need to understand this section in light of God's covenant with his people. Go back to verse 19. Or look at verse 19. He says, he brought me out into a broad place. He rescued me because he delighted in me. So first God delighted in him and then God rescued him. That's covenant language. Or at the end of the psalm in verse 50, we see this. David writes, great salvation he brings to his king and shows steadfast love to his anointed. That's steadfast love. That's covenantal language. That's God saying, I am going to love you faithfully. I'm placing my love on you, David, and on all of my people. Beginning with Father Abraham, you'll remember God made a covenant with his people. 
And that covenant was, listen, I am going to bless my people. I will protect my people. I will deliver my people as they lived by faith in him. And faith in God is demonstrated through faithfulness to the covenant. So David, although far from perfect, lived a life that was faithful to the covenant. He lived a life where he said, the Lord is my God. And he lived his life uh, following the scriptures. He lived his life obeying the word of the Lord. Now, some of us might want to say, well, like, what about Bathsheba? <laughs> like, the, ha, has David forgotten about that episode? Because that was a total failure. Well, the answer is no. He hadn't forgot about that. But part of being faithful to the covenant was following the prescribed sacrifices that God had given to his people in the Old Testament to atone for their sins. So again, faithfulness to the covenant did not equal perfect righteousness. It equaled faith in the Lord and following God's uh, guidelines and following what God had put in front of his people. In the Old Testament, there are two types of people. There are the righteous and there are the wicked. There are those who belong to God and those who don't. David belonged to the Lord and David was faithful to the Lord through his life. Even through all of his failures, David would come back to the Lord, confess his sins, repent, and keep on walking with the Lord. In verses 25 through 27, we see the dealings of God with people in general. He says in verse 25, with the merciful, you show yourself merciful. With the blameless man, you show yourself blameless. Now, generally speaking, people reap what they sow. Okay, he's saying, look, if you're a merciful person, that's how God's going to come. That's how God's going to deal with you. In verse 29, or rather, I'm sorry, in verse 27, he says, you save a humble people, but the haughty eyes you bring down. The Lord is going to deal with people, generally speaking, in such a way that they reap what they sow. Now, that's not always true. It's not always that those who live a good life, have good results. And those who live a wicked life have terrible results. And that's why the Bible includes two books like Job and Ecclesiastes. Those books help us to see that life is more complex than a simple, you always reap what you sow in the here and now. And so Job and Ecclesiastes deal with the exceptions. But the general rule is in life, you reap what you sow. God aligns himself with the merciful. God aligns himself with the innocent. God aligns himself with the underdogs. That's what humble refers to here. It refers to the poor. It refers to the afflicted. It refers to the oppressed. And God has a special place in his heart for people like that. But we also learn here that God stands against the wicked and the treacherous. Finally, in verses 28 through 30, we see again David speaking about how God dealt with him personally. David was among the humble. David was among the oppressed. David was among the innocent. And so God was the one to light his lamp and lighten his darkness and give him victory over his enemies. All of this demonstrates that God is a God who is consistent with his, in his character. God is consistent with his actions and God is consistent with his word.
Well, section four is verses 31 through 45. And in this section, we see the delivered and the deliverer. Now, in a way, this section retells the episode that we already looked at of verses six through 19. But this time it fills in the details of how God's deliverance actually worked out in David's life. So now we're going to see a focus in the retelling of the deliverance story, but a focus on David and what happened in David's life. And in short, the deliverance came through military victory. David's enemies throughout his life were militaristic enemies. And so it was through military actions that David was able to defeat them. Notice in verse 33, David talks about being swift-footed. He had the feet of a deer. In verse 34, his hands were trained. He had hands of war. In verse 34 also, he was able to bend a bow of bronze. In verse 35, he had a shield. In verse 37, he was able to overtake his enemies. In verse 39, he had strength for the battle. In verse 40, we see his enemies fleeing and being destroyed. In verse 42, he beats his enemies fine as dust. In verse 43, David becomes the head of the nations. And also verse 43 through 45, we see foreigners serving him and obeying him and surrendering to him out of fear. And so this is a description again of military action. That David is fighting battles, that David is having victory over all of his enemies. But here's the point. Notice that in all of these actions and in all of these military feats, David sees God as the one behind all of it. God was the one who empowered David and enabled David to have military victory. Just to see a simple sampling of this, look at verse 32 and verse 33. The God who equipped me with strength and made my way blameless. He made my feet like the feet of a deer and set me secure on the heights. As you read the whole section with every descriptor about what David did, he says, actually, God is the one who enabled me to do what I did. In short, David sees God as the one behind all of this. Now, certainly from a human standpoint, David looked like a mighty, fierce warrior. You just don't mess with that guy. Okay, and it looked like the reason why he was destroying everybody is just because he's awesome and he's a great military leader. Y'all remember when the women of the city were singing David's praises. They were singing, well, hey, Saul killed his thousands, but David killed his tens of thousands. Well, that's what it looked like. It just looked like he was a mighty warrior. But David wasn't that naive. David understood that it was God's hand that supported him and provided all of his successes. Now, I've been athletic most of my life, but I'll tell you one sport I've never been good at. Bowling. I've never, ever gotten into bowling. Maybe it was the shirts. Maybe it was the shoes. I don't know, but I just never got into bowling. Never been able to get a great score. But I'll tell you this. If I do want a pretty good score, and if I want to ensure that I get this many gutter balls, I can do it. 
All I have to do is pull out the bumpers. Because the second I'm playing with bumpers, I don't get any gutter balls. And I can actually rack up a pretty decent score. Now, let's say I went bowling with you and I pulled out the bumpers. And sure enough, I bowled like a 215. That's a good bowling score, right? Let's say I scored like a 215. What would you think of me if every time I talked about bowling, I told people, yeah, my best score ever was 215 after using bumpers? What would you think of me if I talk like that? That's pretty lame, right? Like to brag, like, yeah, I've gotten a 215 in bowling before, but not tell people that I was using bumpers. It'd be totally lame. I mean, it is true. I scored 215. It was me. I took the ball. I threw it down the lane and I actually knocked down that many pins. So there's a truth to that. But again, it's not telling the whole story. And it would be totally naive of me to think that I actually scored a 215 because it would have never, ever, ever happened without the help of the bumpers. This is how David saw his life. Other people might've looked at David and thought, man, he's just a success story. He killed the the giant Goliath. He's destroyed all of Israel's enemies. He's the greatest military general we've ever had. He is the man. And yes, it is true. David did shoot the arrows. David did swing the sword. David did jump over the walls. David did sit down and plan the battles. But it would have never, ever happened without God's help. If God wasn't the one giving David the victory, he would have been defeated. And so David, this man after God's own heart, was wise to give God all the glory for all of his success. And we would be wise to do the same. Jesus told us, apart from me, you can do nothing. Without Jesus and without the power that he supplies to us, we can't do anything that is going to bless others or honor God. So when your ministry blesses someone else, you don't take the credit. You give glory to the Lord. If someone walks up to me sometime and says, hey, great sermon pastor, I shouldn't say, yeah, I know, right? That was awesome, right? I totally crushed it today, didn't I? In fact, if I say that, you should step back like five feet because that's where the lightning strike might come down. Right? No, the response should be, well, praise the Lord. God is so faithful. If somebody comes up to you and says, man, you are such a generous person and your generosity has helped me. You don't say, yeah, I am. In fact, maybe I'm a little too generous sometimes. No, no, no. You say, you know what? God has been so generous to me. And honestly, it's the least that I can do. It's the least that I can do. God is so generous to me. Listen, 1 Peter 4.11 says, Whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies. Whatever service we offer, whatever ministry we offer, listen, we're doing that in the strength that God supplies. And this is not just true in ministry. In every aspect of our lives, we need to remember that, yes, we work, but God is the one working through us. So listen, you go out and you work to provide for the needs of your family. And yet, he is the one who gives us this day our daily bread. Remember, yes, you are the one who flees temptation. And yet, 
God is the one who gives us the way of escape, 1 Corinthians 10, 13. David takes no credit for his deliverance. David gives all the glory to God. And this is the posture of the Christian life. We don't pretend for a second that our giftedness or our godliness or our success in life are our own doing. Everything we have that is good is because of God's grace. And this causes us to be a people who sing praise to God, much like David here in this psalm. Well, let's end here, verses 46 through 50. The fifth section, David ends with concluding praise. He says this at the very end. He says, The Lord lives, and blessed be my rock, and exalted be the God of my salvation. The God who gave me vengeance and subdued peoples under me, who rescued me from my enemies. Yes, you exalted me above those who rose against me. You delivered me from the man of violence. For this I will praise you, O Lord, among the nations and sing to your name. Great salvation he brings to his king and shows steadfast love to his anointed, to David and his offspring forever. David knows that the Lord lives He just has to look at the evidence throughout his life. Certainly David knew his God was alive. His God had delivered him time and time again. And so David wanted to bless the Lord, exalt the Lord, praise the Lord, sing sing praise to the Lord. And in the final verse, David is confident that God is going to continue to show steadfast love to him and to his offspring forevermore. That verse takes us back to 2 Samuel chapter 7 and the Davidic covenant where God made a covenant with David and God promised that David's kingdom would be an eternal kingdom, but not because David would live eternally. No, no, no. It would be an eternal kingdom because one of his offspring would be raised up and would sit on his father David's throne and would rule forevermore. And of course, that future Davidic king would be none other than the Lord Jesus Christ. Significantly, Paul quotes verse 49 in Romans chapter 15, and he treats it as a prophecy about Jesus Christ. Romans 15, starting in verse 8, we read, For I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised to show God's truthfulness in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs, And in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. As it is written, and here's Psalm 1849. Therefore I will sing praise, or therefore I will praise you among the Gentiles and sing to your name. So David is able to take Psalm 18 and say that this, in part, is messianic prophecy. That this, in part, is actually being fulfilled through Jesus Christ. So yes, Psalm 18 is David's psalm. It's David's song and it's about his life. But the Holy Spirit inspired these words to find their ultimate fulfillment in Jesus. In fact, the great reformer John Calvin said, much of this psalm agrees better with Christ. What does Calvin have in mind? Well, let me just give you a sampling as we close. When God promises to show steadfast love to his anointed, that word is Messiah in verse 50, 
that that promise applies more fully to Jesus. Or when God made David the head of the nations in verse 43, it's a precursor to Christ as the ultimate head of the nations. Or when David says that God dealt with him according to his righteousness, Jesus could say that in the ultimate sense. See, David could only use this language in a relative sense. But Jesus could use that language in its absolute sense. God dealt with Jesus according to his righteousness. And God deals with every one of us who by faith are in Jesus according to Christ's righteousness. When David is called the servant of the Lord in the superscription, he is but a shadow that anticipates the ultimate servant of the Lord, Jesus Christ. When David recounts how the cords and snares of death and the grave were around him, he only knows a fraction of the reality that Christ would endure. And when David celebrates God delivering him from death, Jesus could celebrate that God delivered him through death. And thus we can see what Derek Kidner meant when he wrote, every theme of this psalm was to gain new depth with Christ. Psalm 18 encourages our hearts as we look at God's faithfulness to David. But Psalm 18 also fills our hearts with hope of our own future deliverance because of what Christ has done, the ultimate servant of the Lord, who went to the cross and died for our sins and who went through death and God raised him to life again. Because we know that by faith, we are united to Christ. We are made righteous and we share in his resurrection life forevermore. And so we're going to celebrate that in just a moment in song. And we're going to celebrate that by reflecting on what Christ has done for us through celebrating the Lord's Supper together. So let's pray and do that.